Okay, we're recording. I'm going <clears> to <throat> kick a saw. I'm going to clear my voice. It's the annoying thing I do before every episode. Hey, and welcome back to it? Fidelity. Oh, no, no, no. No worries. No worries. Oh, oh, sorry. I already ruined it. I'm sorry, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm already failed. We're, we're keeping that in. We're keeping that in. I Keep love that. In. Hey, and welcome back to Fidelity, a conversational show about the work of design. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and... Uh, Layer naming troll John Rundle. Hello, John. <laughs> you okay? This is the worst because now the rest of the team is starting to like gang up on me on layer naming layers. Like Almond the other day was what? like, "Oh, I think I found a layer that wasn't named," and then we discovered it was somebody <laughs> else. And I was like, "See, it wasn't me." But like now it's yeah. a thing. You made it a it thing. You made it a thing. Who 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 misnamed the layers? Uh, it was Adam. It wasn't it was John. It wasn't me though. <laughs> I never. I never. It wasn't I know either. that for a fact. <laughs> okay well god okay wait, let, let's not get it down that rabbit hole we're, we're just gonna be dunking on john's layer naming for hours but uh today we're gonna jam on the topic of visual design and of course to do that we'll need to have an actual visual designer on the show so we thought hey who better than to bring on amy Devereaux, who did such an amazing job on our fidelity podcast branding so amy welcome and uh thanks so much for letting us uh drag you on the show <laughs> Hi, um, you guys are so kind, and thanks for having me. Yeah, oh, it's, nice a, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm going to cue in some uh, applause, like sound effects. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, welcome. no. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, I have a point blank question to ask you now. Uh, I said that we wouldn't talk about this, but do you name your layers like John, or are you like me and you like to live dangerously on the edge of? Uh, frame 486 you know i felt a lot of pressure at the beginning of this call as you're talking about it so i wasn't going to say anything because i didn't also want to be dunked on but i am for sure a layer namer and i am what? just as neurotic as john in fact like i think <laughs> probably worse we've bonded in the past that's probably the only reason we're friends actually yeah, yeah i think it is work. i think that's literally <laughs> i think the only, the only reason, reason we're friends is we just like bonded over this like uh neuroses that we have <laughs> so. okay okay well ho hold on here hold on like um so i'm gonna I'll ask you both this question do you like when a project's over do you ever go back and open those old files like i'm wondering about like the long-term need to name these layers like do, do you do you ever go back yeah i pull out yeah, like old explorations all the time you know this. Oh, okay. You both yeah. know yeah. this. <laughs> well you'll go look at how things like were set up or how you built them and just like yeah, it's so helpful. Or, okay, it's actually even less about me. Like for collaboration, mm -hmm. it's so much easier to pop into someone else's file and understand what's going on when they have things like grouped and layered and named yep. properly. See, mm -hmm. Bill, okay. we're, just, we're, we're just more thoughtful people than you are. Whatever, man. <laughs> just, whatever. <laughs> just get off my back about that. Yeah, you know what? Like one day I'm going to show... <laughs> <laughs> like I, I would love to see how much extra time goes into naming layers carefully because no naming, naming things is hard. Not, none. You do none. it immediately. Yeah. You do it immediately. There's no okay. extra time. Okay. All right. It's just, you command R and you, you name it as you make it. And there's yeah. literally, yeah. Yeah. But you've got to think about what to name the thing, right? Not like really. let's say it's an atypical component. Like it's not a typical UI component. You got to think about like, like what do you name this thing? Right. Naming is hard. Yeah, but most of the time you can just make them pretty generic, like list, header, title, footer, bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You don't really need to get that crazy with it. <laughs> All right, yeah, let's we're, stop. we're not like giving them like like fun, like naming them like I don't know, like Genevieve or something like that. Like they're just, <laughs> oh. you know, you're just. 
Well, I think you've identified <laughs> my problem. That yeah, every every layer name has some novel name to it. So uh, that I've got to get over that. Anyway, okay, like oh god, let's stop. Um, uh, <laughs> Amy, we're gonna get into an intro for you in just a sec. But I first wanted to catch up uh, everyone on uh, John and I's bet. So recently placed a bet on yeah. uh, an Apple event where uh, like so, so John was convinced that if Apple released an always on display for the iPhone that they'd only do it on the pro model. And I, of course, disagreed mm-hmm. because, well, that makes no sense. Uh, it turns out that <laughs> well, Apple makes no sense. So I'm guessing that John has probably put his uh, ill-gotten $50 into his new uh, 14 Pro. And all this to say, uh, congrats, John. You called it. Yep. And obviously, I know nothing about product strategy. So did you get your phone yet? No, it hasn't come yet. It's delayed. I don't know why. It's annoying. Yeah. But... Yeah, we we deserve I, that. Yeah. I knew I was going to win, though. It was like the <laughs> it was like the most confident I've ever been in an answer. I just, nah, I knew it. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure I have a text of you saying like, "Yeah, it could go both ways," no, right? Like, no, I don't think so. I think you're making that up. <laughs> Are you going to go back in iCloud messages and edit that message? Is that what's going to happen now? <laughs> yeah, Am I'm I going to go back and see that? Yeah, yeah, edited. <laughs> um, so uh, before we learn a little bit more about Amy, I thought. It'd be fun to kick us off with a little icebreaker. I call this design, design trivia. Design. You guys ready for this? We need sound effects now. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cue that in more there for clapping, sure. More clapping, I hope. Yeah, we're clapping, some booze Cheering. for John. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> some booze for John. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you guys ready for question number one? Nope. Sure. Okay, well, I'm gonna I shoot it. So. Anyway. Okay, number one, multiple choice. The Bauhaus was founded in 1919 by A. Walter Gropius, B. Hans Meyer, or C. Ludwig Mies van Rohe. I have no idea. So, A. Walter Gropius, B. Hans Meyer, and C. Ludwig Mies van der Rohe. I'm just gonna do guess. We, when do we say it? Can we just like shoot it out you now? Just shoot it out. Yeah. Guessing? What you got, Amy? I'm going with C. 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 Okay. John, um, I'm gonna go with B. B. You're both wrong. The answer was <laughs> the Bauhaus was founded in 1919 by A. Walter Gropius. Okay, let's move on to the next one. This one's this next one's easier. Okay. Okay. So prior to I'm pretty sure that he was. They were other. The other two were involved though, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, they were like the subsequent like people in the school, but Walter was the uh, the the progenitor of, of the Bauhaus. We told you, Bill, we weren't going to be good at trivia. <laughs> I mean, I didn't well, even. You, you could, I didn't even know that much. I didn't even know that you'll, you'll get this involved. one. <laughs> you'll get this next one. Okay. Prior to 2009, the furniture giant IKEA used IKEA Sands, which is an adaptation of Futura, for 50 years. The company then switched to Verdana because its namesake font wasn't capable of using Asian characters. In 2019, IKEA changed their corporate typeface again. Their new font is A, Franklin Gothic, B, Frutiger, or C, Noto. Shout it out. I'm going with B. B, Frutiger. Is B Noto? Which one's the question? No, C is Noto. Noto. Okay. Okay, I guess I'm going with C then. I'm going to stick to my guns. Amy's got it. It's uh. Noto, which is a typeface made by Google. And the reason they chose it was because it's a lot more beneficial to localization, supports a lot of different languages. So 
Uh, Amy's got one over you, John. Uh, and here's the last one. And this is an open answer. So there's no multiple choice. Oh boy. What was the original code name of Google's material design? Oh, I feel like I know this. Yeah, I think you might. A term coined by designer Matthias Duarte. This is going back now, right? This is going back. Mm. Isn't it something like paper or something? Oh, that's close, Amy. Is it? There's, there's a word in front of it. Oh, I'm not going to get the other word. Yeah. John, I don't, I lost don't guesses? Know. No, I don't have any good it's, guesses. So the original name was Quantum Paper. And um, oh. when um, Google released Google Now, which is, um, I guess you can call it their assistant, way back when material design first came, I was the first product to get material design. And they had this, uh, this metaphor for like cards and surfaces being like a quantum paper. And that's the mm. exact term that Matthias Duarte used in, in his keynote, which I, I watched like, I think, 10 times. Uh, <laughs> it was great. Nice. Um, but yeah, so it looks like Amy one over john in today's uh design trivia uh <laughs> no surprise there. The, the most embarrassing thing though is that i should have gotten the first one i <laughs> so well it's, no it's i mean i think you knew that like ones we're getting here <laughs> they were all involved you're right so i think it was just a matter of like like uh <laughs> like knowing the details of history right but uh let's do it again next time and then I, i'm gonna face off against you john so we'll just need another guest on to be the host of design trivia 2.0 <laughs> Love it, love it. <laughs> All right, love okay, it. enough of that silliness. Um, let us know to, on Twitter. I'm John anytime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Amy, we, we met just briefly the other day, uh, but I know you and John go way back. So I think like uh, I and our listeners would love to get an intro to you, like you know where you live, your career, what brought you into to design, and, and what, what keeps you excited about the work you do. Yeah, um, so I live in San Francisco, um, I was born in California, but I've only lived here for about six, seven years now. Um, I am a visual designer, as I think uh, you've probably deduced by this point in the call, <laughs> one that uh, does not remember Bauhaus trivia. And um, <laughs> I, let's see, how I got into design, um, I'm actually just going to tell a, a quick rambly story for a second because yeah. um, it's kind of a, a dorky story but at least in california we have uh the, we had these college board quizzes in high school that you had to do um it's to like define your life essentially and it was supposed to like right. tell you what you were supposed to be and, and <laughs> what you were supposed to do with your entire career and yeah. they really didn't work um at all like, <laughs> they had this reputation of just being uh completely worthless <laughs> and um like every single answer just told you you were supposed to be a teacher or a social worker, oh, uh, no. which is great. Like wonderful industries also to, and fields yeah. to go into, but um, not for every single person. And so they really didn't, they really didn't do, um, do what they were supposed to do. But um, so essentially um, in high school, I took this quiz and it actually worked for me. Um, it told me that I was supposed to be a graphic designer and I actually Wild. had not even heard like what this industry or field was at all mm. and it really uh it really appealed to me and i loved like the balance of creativity um and also like technical capacity where you're kind of using both like left and right sides of your brain since you're you're doing a creative field but like with the intention of communicating a specific purpose 
Right. And I really, really liked that like juxtaposition. So um, I went to design school and studied graphic design traditionally, which was more like print based um, mm-hmm. after that. And um, then worked at creative agencies, interning during school, and then worked there full time for a few years and then kind of transitioned more to the in-house side of things. Um, and got into the startup world, uh, worked at Envoy where I met John, um, and and yeah, now I'm uh, I'm working for myself and, and helping other companies build brands. That's I'm my so... long and, and rambly <laughs> intro. <laughs> I, I'm like super intrigued by these vocational tests because uh, I, I took one as well, a little bit later than you did, and apparently I'm supposed to be in the military, uh, as it turns Ooh. out, which is super weird. But I'm curious, like. Um, like what sort of questions do they ask on this exam? Like how do they arrive at the fact that you should be a designer based on these questions? Do you remember the questions? Oh gosh, you know what? No one has asked me that. Um, I actually don't, I don't remember. No worries. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Yeah. You know what? I couldn't tell you, but, um, I'm sure it was something, you know, along the lines of like, what's your favorite subject? And like, what do you think you're good at? And, uh, Probably things around, oh, actually, there was something around, like, uh, do you like working with people or do you like working in isolation? Right. I do remember that as being one right. question, mm. um, which I was like, both. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think that's why they were like, design is good for you. You have to do this. <laughs> so, like, so you, you get this vocational exam. It tells you, it encourages you to, to go into design or seek something visual as a, as a career. Like, did you ever, like, doubt that sense of, like, a, a direction as you were you know, marching towards it? No, actually I didn't. I, I really um, liked the creative, um, the creative uh, classes and, yeah. and um, subjects. That's the word I'm looking for in school. Um, I really liked like art, but I didn't want to just like be an artist and, and like make no money and <laughs> yeah. not be able to support myself. And um, I was, I was worried more about like, the, or I guess that my parents were worried about the, the tangible side of it. Um and so I wasn't really sure like how to, to kind of blend those things. Yeah. Um, and then as soon as I read it and read the description and I was like, oh yeah, like somebody is the person that like lays out magazines and like right. somebody is the one that's designing the cereal boxes. Like I remember those two specific things like being in the description and I was like, mm-hmm. that is so cool. And um, I just like knew that that was for me and just started that's marching. Amazing. Marching towards that. Yeah, never look yeah. back. Wait, no. Does that mean that you have a dream, Amy, of one day designing a cereal box? <laughs> you know, I I guess I do. Um, you've okay, really then. uncovered a new goal for me, a new I life. Know. You, you I've done to... a milk I've done a milk carton, which is like oh, related. Nice. Oh. <laughs> you yeah. use that. Now you you need to land a cereal brand now and then do a cereal box. Oh that's, no. That's a goal. Okay, now. Kellogg's, I'm coming for you. All right. <laughs> Love it. But John, you, you did a vocational test too, didn't you? Yeah, I did one, like, I think it was like in grade 10 or something, uh-huh. like part of, I think it was like civics class or something. I really, I really don't remember at all because I just remember thinking that like I was trying to answer the questions in a way that it would end up with like professional hockey player <laughs> or something like that. Like, I was like, how can I, how can I tweak these answers to be what I want it to be on the outcome? That's amazing. But you I were remember, trying to game the vocational yeah, test. I was, I was, Amazing. and I was like, my only, <laughs> my only goal at that time was just trying to become an NHL player. So I was like, <laughs> how can I make this sound like 
more hockey related <laughs> was was this like answer necessary to go into the, the nhl like no, did you need no. a hockey answer no not at apply? all like it, it didn't have any bearing on anything it just was like i was like if i can make this result in the way that i want it to i will try <laughs> i love it that's so good so uh like i guess a common question that at least early eight stage designers have for me about like uh, your, your craft, Amy, around visual design is how do you get good at it? And I think like a lot of people, um, uh, you know, I got into being very interested in visual design and art by seeing amazing pieces of art and wanting to do the same thing. I wanted to copy it. And I think that's a, a common thing that, um, that you know, it, it's, a, it's a topic that John and I brought up before where when people say that, you know, they don't have uh, strong visual design skills, well, our advice is usually, well, you need to look at great design all day and really understand how it comes together. Um, was that similar for you? Like, or did you just always have this like tendency to, to uh, create visuals and be really engaged with creating uh, uh, be beautiful pieces of work? Oh, no. Uh, no. <laughs> quite the contrary. <laughs> um, I, I like still, you know, uh, you know, just as, as most designers just like, you know, loathe your own work. Um, but I, I think it's, it's one of those things that you like anything, you really like have to, uh, to study it. And, and like you said, like copy and, um, and just really like practice because mm -hmm. it is, uh, it's something that you just can't like, like, yes, there's inclination. I think you can be mm -hmm. inclined towards a creative industry or, or things along those lines. But, um, to really get good at it, I think it takes a lot of, of uh, a lot of practice, like yeah. anything. Yeah. I, I oftentimes um, think of some designers as having good taste. Uh, they're not necessarily great at the execution of it. So I think like when designers reach a certain uh, level of seniority, they tend not to be as hands-on, but they still have that sense of like of taste. Like they understand what looks good um, and why it would appeal to a certain audience. Do you feel like there is that sort of like sense of taste that you're kind of born with or do you feel like that's grown over time you know it's i would say it's probably uh, a mix of the two mm. um mm. like anything you know <laughs> like which is yeah, such yeah. like a, um, a cop-out answer maybe but um i, I think there is a, a sort of inclination that you or like tendency or intuition that you can be like born with or have innately like even people sometimes that aren't designers um mm -hmm. and you mentioned those that are like that have grown and maybe aren't hands-on anymore. But I think even those in other industries sometimes will have that like good sense of, uh, of, of when something is good and have that intuition. And, and sometimes they haven't even been trained. So I think that can kind of point towards it being um, this like gut feeling. Um, mm. But at the same time, I think like the more you're around it and exposed and the more you're like spending a lot of time, like, dissecting it and, and copying things and learning and um and being kind of immersed the more you really right um you can maybe get to that realization faster mm -hmm. no i like that term immersed because i think that's that's exactly what i had to do to really make any progress in you know training my craft i, I don't have any natural talent to speak of and i uh the term use is, is exactly right i just immersed myself in books and um, examples of really beautiful print design and typography and typesetting um, for years. And that's what it took to really sort of move my craft forward. You know, I want to kind of delve into this idea of like, of copying. And 
and, uh, or, or stealing as some people like to call it. Like, <laughs> I think it's really helpful for, uh, for any sort of designer, really. Like, even if you're like a, a UI designer, like, uh, John and I are always talking about the fact that we're just rehashing ideas over and over again. Um, and you know, with a with slightly different take on it, but I guess with, with copying or stealing, there is this question of like, well, how far do you, how far do you take that? Right. Like I've seen, like when you look at things like patterns, like uh, Instagram stories, and then, you know, uh, how TikTok uh, runs its feed, there's a lot of like copying that, you know, very direct copying that's happening in the industry. But then I think for visual design, it might be slightly different. Like how far, like how would you draw that line in, in, in on, on your side of the craft? I feel like I'm just rambling at you guys now and, and, and Don't, that's fine. Uh, not even giving <laughs> you and John a, a <laughs> no, it's good. answer here. Um, I, I think like... Um, it's really, really helpful in the early stages um, when mm. you're just starting out, especially to to copy almost directly. Um, you know, you can really kind of that that immersion that I was talking about earlier, or really getting familiar with it. I think you can get kind of get that sense like even faster if you just like literally take something and you're you're building it almost like one to one and yeah. and recreating it from from scratch, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that can be really, really helpful. Um, but I think that is like that eternal question of like, where is that, that line? Um, mm-hmm. And it, because at some point, like there's, you're adapting something and it's learning and it's evolving and it's growing. And I think like everybody does that to a certain extent, um, mm-hmm. like changing it and growing it and evolving it. But you also don't want to have like a direct copy either. Um, yeah. And so I think the, I think your question that is a good one is like, what is that line between the two? And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that really comes with um, maybe just like exposure to it and, and re- like, just like figuring out that balance of like, how much have I, how much have I changed this? Like, how much do I need to change this to make it, mm-hmm. to make it my own? Yeah. Uh, I'm not a proponent of stealing, by the way. I feel like we need to like really clarify that. <laughs> like, oh, sure, oh, uh, sure. I'm not saying you should steal other people's work. Um, <laughs> you know, learn from other people's work um, and whether that's to, like, uh, you know, understand how it's built. There's something interesting about, like, full-on stealing where it actually doesn't help you at all. Like, it 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 doesn't make whatever you're trying to make more... Um, uh, make doesn't make it better, right? Like, it... I think it's really helpful, like, what you were saying around... Um, it's really important to do that kind of copying to learn and immerse yourself and to get better at the craft. But I think like ultimately if you end up like just directly copying one-to-one and then trying to ship that, you're never going to achieve the level of greatness that the original source was, right? Like if you look at Instagram stories, no one's like really done Instagram stories better than Instagram because these things originate from ideas that solve problems for the person who created it. And so by you just like copying it and using it one-to-one, it's not, it's not being used for the same purpose that it originally was built for. Um, Mm -hmm. So you've just like, you've just kind of sacrificed the potential of that thing um, because it's a direct copy. Like, and I think that's true for even like marketing campaigns and stuff or, or, or brands, right. Where it's like, if that wasn't the original intent, like, like that, the original source was built for one specific purpose and it was for that particular brand it was for that particular marketing campaign or whatever it was if you just copy it one-to-one you're not you're not doing it for the same reason 
Um, so it misses, it'll miss the mark in a little, like at least by a little bit, no matter what, I think. I, I couldn't agree more, John. I am, um, I'm also, I think, laughing a little bit because um, were stories actually created by Snapchat first? Oh, oh maybe, maybe were. right? Like, is this like actually like a <laughs> that, throw meta, the whole like, argument. example? <laughs> <laughs> argument just went down the tube. I mean, but I, I still, I actually think your argument is, is, is still like accurate. Um, but I also think maybe there's a component that is yeah. very like there's some like a level of irony there too uh, that like Instagram also copied. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be totally wrong. No, no. I think you're right. I think Snapchat was the progenitor of this like full like full screen UI with an overlay. Like mm-hmm. it's all about the content sort of approach, right? No, I think you're right, Amy. Uh, but it's just so far back now. Well. Not far back. It's like <laughs> we don't even once. remember. Yeah, I, <laughs> the so depths of product is good. time. Take it, take something, make it your own, make it better, and no one will remember the originator. They're <laughs> new. Well, I mean, I that's think the, that's, that's yeah, the takeaway. I think we should. That's the end of the that podcast. That's the takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> Done. No, but I think I think actually there is an element though in there that is interesting because it is like you did say that one important word, which is like making it your own, right? And I think that is that is the part where it can start to become successful because you take an original inspiration and then tweak it into your own. And then it for the purpose of whatever it is you're building it for, whether it be a product, a brand or whatever, um, by tweaking it to to where it works for your thing is where it can be successful. Like it's the same idea of like Google wasn't the first search engine either. Um, but became the most successful one because they made it their own and like like tweaked it to the point where it was a new idea um, and then was successful. Whereas like I think if you don't do that part, if you don't do the like making it your own, that's where like you're end up you're just ending up holding back your the reason you even copied it in the first place. Yeah, right. Now that's a great yeah. way to summarize it. Um, and and coming back to that distinction, Amy, that you made around like you know you know, you shouldn't steal legit and like make it, you know, and call it your own work. I think stealing is this act of like, you know, copying to practice. And that's a, that's different from saying, Hey, this is my original work. Um, and it reminds me of a Renaissance artists who spent many of their early years just copying the greats that came before them, like to the very brushstroke. And I think the point of that was not to call it their own work, but to really build that muscle and really understand why that artist did that in the first place. And I think like that's the part of copy of stealing that's important. And then uh, this this act of um, taking that and then applying it to your own original ideas. Well, that, that, I think that's what we're getting to, right? It's copying for the sake of of building that muscle and really understanding, and then a, taking those skills and adapting it to something else. If that makes sense. Um, I. You know, I think with visual design, something that I uh, am bad at because I'm always rehashing ideas that have come before is is pushing further. And I, I can't stop thinking about quite a few years ago when Dropbox did this rebrand. And I think they were one of the first Valley companies to push this like brutalist style of visual design. And I think when I first saw it, I was like, oh God, why, why would they do that? Like that's a, that's a you terrible You and the rest decision. of the internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then years later, now I look at it, I'm just like, oh, that's pretty, uh, that looks great. I mean, I, I love, I love how fresh that looks. Right. So I, I, I myself can't tell the difference between what's innovative and what's legit bad 
and ugly. Like, how would you like, frame that difference? Like, I have such a hard time with this. Uh, well, to me, a lot of it is like uh, familiarity. You know, like I could, mm. I am not the person um, probably, this is probably like a negative trait about me, but I'm not like the person that usually tends to like necessarily like what I'm not familiar with right mm. off the bat. Like there's like a new song that's like a totally different genre and it's like, oh, that's like, unfamiliar and like it feels uncomfortable um and so i think like that's an interesting piece because i think that does have a lot of overlap with design too mm -hmm. and when it's something like you, you haven't seen uh you're not like familiar with it it doesn't feel comfortable yeah. um and i think there's a little bit of it that like you should feel kind of uncomfortable to really be innovating and like if people aren't a little bit upset or have like a little bit of an allergic reaction like i almost think that that's a bad sign like that means that it's boring yeah i guess i'm advocating for like make people uncomfortable <laughs> like, don't be afraid to like uh kind of like make yourself even uncomfortable yeah i, I think that's the piece that it it's important to apply like knowing why you're applying that idea right like if is is the goal of what you're designing to be innovative then yeah feel comfortable with the uncomfortable but if your goal actually isn't to be innovative um then there's that idea of like leaning into familiarity because i don't think i don't think it i don't think i think we we sometimes put innovation on like a pedestal of like that's where every all all work should always like aim for that but i don't think that that's actually true right like you shouldn't always be aiming for innovative with every single thing that you design or build like mm -hmm. there are times where it makes sense mm -hmm. and there are times where it doesn't like, and, and Absolutely. knowing when to apply that and what makes that innovative or not is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess that's true of like certain things like, like pricing tables, for example, like if a product has a pricing table, why does it need to be any different than like what people are used to? Right. That, that's that, I mean, you, you could argue that one, but I feel like at times maybe just taking the off the shelf approach is okay. I guess I'm just not very good at knowing when to, to break away from that. I guess when it's obvious what the downfalls of a particular approach is, then yeah, sure, you should improve on it. I'm just not sure when to break from it, right? And I think with, with the Dropbox rebrand, I was like, wow, how did they know that this would one day be, I don't know, the new hotness? Or were they setting that groundwork themselves, right? I can't tell the difference. <laughs> Well, I think John said something kind of interesting too about like knowing like what the goal is. And I think that you can almost kind of apply that to what, to what Dropbox did because mm -hmm. um, their goal was a, a rebrand that was intending to shake up how you were perceiving them and to shake uh, up that like industry. And so right. I think like with that goal, like, yeah, you should do something that's kind of uncomfortable. But if you're working on something that's like, um, I don't know, you have an existing brand and you want to make like a bunch of one pagers, let's say, um, to really like communicate, you know, what's going on and, and showcase the existing brand. Like if you just like bring in something like extremely radical and from left field, like it's not gonna look consistent. Um, right. and, yeah. and there's that like, there's that bar between consistency and innovation that I think you're kind of uh, touching on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, it, yeah, you just kind of have to define like when 
when to do those things. Um, and John and I actually were working on something very similar when we were um, at Envoy, um, which we were referring to as quality bars and um, uh, to just like help answer this exact question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, I don't know, I was, John, you want to expand on it even? Yeah, I was actually thinking exactly about that, but also the brand work that you did at Envoy, like um, near the end, right there, like a, a couple years ago, right? Like there was, and, and the idea of like a sliding scale, which is what we use in our quality bars, um, of like how far you push this idea. And I really like this idea of like innovation or not innovating falling in this sliding scale of familiar to uncomfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like what was interesting looking at the branding work, the brand work that you did for Envoy um, was we were, you were, we were leaning more on like a little bit more on the familiar side, right? Because there was like an established piece there that we didn't want to lose with the brand, but there was like new opportunities. We were moving from being like a single product company um, to a multi-suite uh, of products. And so there was like a need to shift that, but not not a need to completely innovate because that would like move too far away from the familiar side that was still important um, in the context of that work, right? So I think like what you, you, what you did there was really great because it, it balanced those two things really well, where it was like, shifting the perception while also remaining familiar. Um, and like, I really like that, yeah, that idea of the sliding scale in that context. You've brought up this topic now of, of brand equity, John, and that's <laughs> a, a topic I could, uh, I could talk about all day long, but I think you summarized it. I think you summarized it really well. You know, I think a lot of students come up to me and when they ask about product design as a craft, I think what they, they may not understand is that you sometimes don't get a lot of opportunities to work on visual design in product design. Um, I, I think it's an in- integral part of product design is, is uh, understanding how the visuals impact um, a, a customer experience. But I think um, a lot of students, when they you know they finish their boot camp and they they go into the um, the workforce, they're a little bit disappointed that they don't really get the opportunity to focus on visual design, especially for certain types of roles where like uh, there's a really strong design system. Um, so oftentimes when I, when I talk to junior designers and you know, they're, they're expressing how they, you know, they, they don't really get a chance to flex their visual muscles. Um, I think for um, designers that are you know, not yet in the workforce, there is this sort of like inflection point where they need to think about, um, or rather expand their understanding about what these different fields are, these different uh, branches of the craft. Um, Do you ever get students or like junior designers come up to you and ask you like, what would be some of the trade-offs of going into product design versus visual design and vice versa? Like, does that ever come up in conversation? Yeah, it comes up actually a lot where uh, they're like, okay, now I'm going to pursue design, but it's like, there's so many options and what do all these things mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I guess what, what I usually kind of ask or like think about as a way to kind of make that decision. Um, is it, I think of them, this is, this is quite an oversimplification, but um, are, are you creating or do you want to create the pathway like towards a specific function mm-hmm. or more towards a specific emotion? Like if you strip away uh, like pixels for a second, like underneath 
the way I think about it, like the, the crux you're, you're trying to achieve, uh, both product and visual intend a very specific action to be taken by the person mm -hmm. who's experiencing it. But how that manifests is wildly different. Um, and it's not a rule, but I, I would say they often come at like different parts of the almost like user journey in a lot of ways. Right. Like visual design can help you get on board with like an idea or a brand. Um, if done well, it helps you feel like the product or the service is really like necessary in your life yeah. or something that would really help you, that would benefit you or help you achieve the lifestyle you want. Um, and with product design, I think you're, you're almost already bought into that idea by the point that you're using the product potentially mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and almost mm -hmm. now need to follow through with something more tangible, um, and utilitarian almost. Yes. And so I think that's the, the kind of question that, that I recommend asking yourself is like, are you more interested in building that, that utilitarian component and helping, um, like more of that like functional aspect or mm -hmm. communicating a specific story that helps that more rely on emotion. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever heard it expressed that way. And I, I think it's an interesting um, thing for us to, to kind of dig more into. Like, do you feel like there's a certain personality type that would be more conducive to, to being able to express and, and like uh, communicate through emotion versus like, you know, being very utilitarian, is that a personality thing or is it merely just an issue of, of, of interest and like, um, uh, being able being really focused on those specific skill sets? I'm curious to hear both of your takes as well. Um, yeah. my kind of reaction is like, I, I actually wonder like our interests really built upon our, not to get like super meta, but like, are we interested <laughs> in the things we're interested in because of the personality traits that we have? Um, yeah, yeah. Like I think those things are like pretty maybe closely related. Um, yeah. but I think some of those maybe traits that, uh, well, I, actually let me just turn it around because I I'm interested, like, was there ever a point in your career where you were like, Hey, wait a second, you know, I could, I could go down either route, but you, you decided on one, um, at least for now. Right. I mean, things change, but like what, mm -hmm. I mean, were you ever at this fork in the road where you had to like maybe consider doing product design more full time? Like, did I ever come up? You know, I it didn't when I was first making the actual decision because mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like at that time, product design was even less well known yeah. than graphic design. Right. Um, to the point where like, even web was barely brought up when I was in school. It was like my senior year, they were like, oh yes. Uh, and the graphic design is like, you might have to learn web design. And everyone was like, wow. Um, <laughs> and we had to like take like, like one class. And it was like, but like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. It was kind of, uh, it was almost too distant, but it definitely came up more um, when I was in agencies and then starting to transition more into, um, like the startup world. Yeah. And I think where it came for me was like, there was almost no question in my mind. I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. I, yeah. <laughs> I could do that, but I don't want to do that. Well, that's good. I mean, it, I think, I think a lot of people would like that, that certainty, right? Like, and obviously you show the tendencies towards being a very talented visual designer. So it was obvious for you. I think for some people it's, it's a little less obvious, right? So I guess that's kind of what I was digging into. Um, John, you're, mm -hmm. you're, you've always impressed me with your visual design skills yourself. 
And I, I, I'm curious if you ever reached this fork in the road where you're just like, hey, wait a second, maybe I should just do more of this. Yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't either. Like, I feel like I have the same level of confidence in wanting to be where I am because I think there's so much of my background that have come from uh, even pro- like doing a lot of programming right early on in my career and then shifting to mm-hmm. design. I think there's always been that like util- utilitarian piece of design that I really like still gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, um, like thinking that way in the very like functional foundational kind of idea of product design still like really resonates with me. Um, I just know that I always want to be in a role where I have the opportunity to affect the visuals more, right? Like sure. I, I know that I'm more in maybe the middle ground of that type of role where I want to be able to do both. Um, yeah. I know yeah. for certain that I wouldn't want to be in a role where like it's all strictly about the functional side and I don't have a chance to affect the visuals. Right. So that part I have confidence in, but I've never felt that like desire to completely shift over to a fully like visual design type of role. Um, I think just because of the way that like I think about design and and I still really like that functional piece. Um, and actually this is what I think Amy and I like in working together, like realize in how we work together is that like we both have a little element of the overlap that we enjoy working on that mm-hmm. like we were able mm-hmm. to like collaborate a lot on projects because we could like see both sides of like product and visual design to at least to an extent where it could become very collaborative um, and yeah. made it a lot of fun too. You know, this overlap between product and visual design and brand design, um, I've, I don't think I've ever seen it work optimally, but it, lo- it sounds like you guys had a great time working together. So like, I'm curious, like what elements of your like relationship made those crafts come together and sort of overlap well? I actually wish that they overlapped more often because mm-hmm. I, I see a huge, well, I see actually often that it goes two different ways, either, um, especially like sitting on, on more the, the brand and, and visual side of things that either mm-hmm. like there'll be no communication whatsoever and like the product and the brand will just like kind of be like living wild and independent Mm -hmm. um or or like the the brand team will like package up everything and be like okay like this is what we made for you and this is how you're (laughs) supposed to use it and put it in the product and like that really doesn't work either because things don't translate that one-to-one right there's Mm -hmm. there's completely different needs in the product design world than there are from a brand and visual perspective and the way um that john and i were really fortunate to to work together on this is that um we were able to um kind of have a lot of open conversations mm-hmm. and and debates and disagreements and um around uh, like what is that transition and what does that look like like maybe like Maybe a lot of the colors stay the same when only you're using like like illustrations for empty states in the product, right? right? And or and all the buttons are consistent because you maybe don't need a reason for buttons to be different. Um, but maybe there's a whole expanded color palette, you know, for <laughs> um, for like error states that you really can't use with the colors you're using in an illustration. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So like conversations like that where where you're talking about like what is just enough to be able to make it look like it's telling the same story 
without it losing the purpose of of what the product is supposed to do and how it's supposed to function Mm -hmm. and there is that point and it's not every single brand component and every single color and every single shape like you can't Mm. do the exact same things but it's the answer i believe also is not nothing um and so it's figuring out like where like for your specific brand or your specific product like what elements need to be retained in order to tell that story at a bird's eye view but still serve a purpose and so john and i had a lot of fun i think or at least i think it was a lot of fun um, to uh to kind of lead the charge in both respects um from where we were sitting and and get to figure out what did that look like i like that a lot like the term you the phrase you used was just enough and if i could abstract that a bit more would you describe that relationship between like brand visual and product design as a push and pull Mm -hmm. where you're trying to find that balance and that's just a necessary part of that relationship where maybe on the brand side you're trying to trying to push a little bit more and then on the product side you're trying to restrain a bit more does that is that would that would that be accurate no i think i think that if you look at if i look back at like the way that amy and i collaborated on that work was very much like a lot of pushing and pulling in both directions too right like Mm -hmm. in terms of what made sense for what surface um and i think the reason like going back to the question on like how did it work why were we able to create a bit more of that collaboration i think was because we were both willing to do that um Mm. and both willing to like learn about the other side enough to like be able to like understand the problems that each side were facing like amy could i could speak to what we needed the product side to do and and amy could understand and appreciate that difference and then be able to suggest how it could still work from a from a brand perspective or from a feeling perspective um right and then vice versa right like i think i think that was the important part that like made it work and and mm-hmm. i think part of that was like a lot of push and pull of like let's try this a little bit further this way and like oh no bring that back or like what if we push it the other way and then bring it back and then like kind of find those balancing points and i think to add on to that it's important to have it be like both people are opinionated Mm -hmm. but also willing to understand the other person's perspective and value Mm -hmm. what they're valuing too and if you can really enter into like okay in this position and in this role these are the things that are important on both sides Mm -hmm. then you get to this really beautiful like solution that incorporates both sides and just makes everything better yeah, I I can see that you're very willing to dunk on John, which is I think is a perfect <laughs> precursor to a good relationship. I think. But. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's actually the most necessary. Is you need to yeah exactly be able to criticize the person. You're <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, John's easy to criticize. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, John. No, I, I love. Yeah, him. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so Amy, I, I'd love to just tie up this conversation. I mean, there's so much more to talk about, but. Um, you know, John and I have a vested interest in really talking directly to junior designers. And if you were, let's, let's imagine you're talking to a junior designer today and they were asking you for one piece of advice on how to excel in your craft. What would that advice be to this junior designer? I would first say that there's, I'm actually going to give you three things. Sure. I love that. The first thing that I would, that I would say. Um, and the first thing is that, um, like from a, a technical perspective, 
my biggest recommendation that I give to junior designers is to really focus on deeply understanding the grid and mm. typography. Um, the biggest differences I see between strong and average designers is their understanding or lack thereof of these two principles because they are like truly the backbone of everything that you make and if you understand how to typeset and how to create a composition um i think that that really is such a strong like underlying like foundational principles um that just really manifest like throughout everything you do so i would say like really master master those two components love that um from a tactical perspective, this actually uh, kind of loops back to some things we were talking about earlier, which is to just like copy um, mm -hmm. a lot at the beginning um, and not to to actually publish anything or, or submit anything or put anything in your portfolio, but just like you were saying with these, these uh, you know, Renaissance artists to really help hone in on what good means and also how you get there and how you make it because when you actually have to recreate something it really gives you the tools of like of what you need to do to like actually get to that point so um right. just like copy as much as you can and and learn that technical uh that technical piece of it and then from like an emotional aspect um just as absorb as much as you possibly can about you know what is deemed as good design um and find out why like deconstruct it mm. um, go look up you know uh famous designers and, and famous things that have been made and and you might look at it and be like oh, i don't know why this is good or i don't know what the, the point is of this <laughs> or maybe you love it um it could be either end but i would say like kind of pick it apart and figure out like what makes this good um because that will also give you the tools to be able to articulate um when you've arrived at a solution and also hone that intuition right you're talking about uh, like also rambly yeah yeah i know i love that last point too is is that also just an issue of like um you know understanding the why of it allows you to just rationalize it especially when you're selling it to a client i guess is that that's what you're talking about it could be a client it could be your your uh your manager or your creative director it could yeah. be just in design crit um with your peers um, I think it's a, if you can't speak about your work, um, it's it's hard for people to you know understand the decisions that that you and the thought process and how you, you got to that specific conclusion and and mm -hmm. get buy in from other people because right. especially with visual design it can be so nuanced or intangible mm -hmm. that you do sometimes really have to sell your idea um, as to why why it is good. Love that, love that. I'm gonna end this conversation with the the most important question. Uh, Illustrator or Figma, and why is it Figma? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna let John answer first because uh, I have a probably more spicy perspective. <laughs> I mean, Figma because I actually know how to use it. Illustrator, because I'm <laughs> terrible at it. <laughs> well, you know, I would argue no one actually knows how to use Illustrator. It's well, so does. powerful. What? Amy well, does. No, no. I, no, I mean, uh, I, I know you know how to use it, Amy. I'm just saying no one knows how to use all of it. Oh, that. to the like, fullest extent. Yeah. Absolutely. There's no human that exists. Not yeah. even the people that work on Illustrator. I think that's true. <laughs> um, no, but my, my answer to this question is just like, I think uh, different from everyone on the internet, especially in the, in the recent <laughs> Figma news as the internet has been melting. Um, 
I really don't think it's a conversation of this versus that at all. Um, These two things, I think, serve a completely different purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, And I use both daily. Like I have both tools open and pinned and like I couldn't possibly imagine replacing one with the other. Um, So anytime this conversation comes up, it just like (laughs) makes my head explode because I'm like, why these things don't even... They don't even compete. Um, <laughs> yes, Figma has a pen tool, but it is terrible. So it's uh, true. No. It but really who knows does what suck. will happen? It's thank you. It's really, it's really bad. So uh, who knows what will happen though? You know, Adobe is coming in and now uh, owning Figma, and maybe this really will be a conversation and a, and a real debate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you, do you use Illustrator at all, John? No, I don't. No. Okay. All right. Well, then you can't really say anything. about I can't. I can't. No, I can't. I mean, I never, I never make anything that like requires Illustrator though either. Yeah. Like I, well, I can't design logos. Can you edit that to say I don't really make anything? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's more effective. (laughs) I mean, I like, I'm like, I, I can't design a logo. I can't design icons or illustrations. Like I can make UI. I can make boxes. That's all I can make. (laughs) Well, uh, you're, yeah, I mean, we're on the same boat, man. I mean, I, I can make smiley faces in Illustrator. <laughs> I think that's as far as I go. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, I, I think, uh, anyway, we, I'm going to stop it there. I mean, we could talk about Illustrator versus Figma all day. Um, Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I know people can reach you on, on Twitter at uh, AmyTD, and uh, they can reach you on your website, amy.design. Um, any, any parting words for us before you, we start our working day? Just thank you so much for having me. Um, it was fun to chat with you both and um, share and talk about talk about design. So I appreciate it. Yeah, and I, I'm really grateful that you brought John down a few notches. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's important. that's actually my it's favorite important. thing to do. If, if you ever need that, um, I'm available. Um, <laughs> John's wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Have a great day. You too. You too. Bye. Fidelity Podcast is hosted and produced by John Rundle and Bill Chung. Visual brand design by Amy Deborah. Rate, review, and subscribe to Fidelity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.